Glad you're with us this morning. Kind of a big day for our family. Uh, my wife just arrived in Columbia, South Carolina about uh, 15 minutes ago because our oldest daughter, Christy, is in labor for our fourth grandchild. So uh, I'm kind of glad to be here with you. <laughs> no, I'm super glad to, to be here, but um, kind of kind of fun for us. Actually, this is our oldest son's birthday, so it looks like our first grandson and our first son are going to be born on, share the same, same birthday. So um, I want us to think this morning together about going home. I want us to think about that because we're going to see Jesus encounter home, that is where he grew up. So let me ask you a question first. If you were going home next weekend to go back to where you grew up, would you be super excited or kind of dreading it? Because we have a wide range of what we experience when we think about going home. Some would be like, uh, I'd rather have a root canal. And others would go, oh man, that's, I can't wait to go home. I love going home. It's, it's an interesting reality of going home. And so we're going to see Jesus encountering his going home in Mark chapter 6. And so as you turn, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6. And, and verse 1 shows us an amazing Verse. It's a, a wow verse, a phenomenal verse in all of the Gospels. It's one of the most wow verses, I think. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. I missed your wow. <laughs> you don't see the wow? Maybe, maybe you missed it. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. <laughs> Not believable. <laughs> Actually, I will admit, I've read this verse many times and never understood, wow. But this is a phenomenal Verse, And we miss it because we often don't read the scripture with a full understanding of the chronology of the life of Jesus. So let me help you with the wow of this verse. More than a year prior to Mark 6, 1, Luke 4 happens. So go back to Luke 4 and in verse 16, more than a year before it says, and he came to Nazareth which is what? Where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. Now, verse 17 through 27 shares with us what he read and then what he said after what he had read. Skip all of that, go to verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things, what he had said and what he had read. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill in which their city had been built in order to do what? Throw him down over the cliff. So, a year or so after that takes place, 
Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. Wow. wow. No, seriously, isn't that, is that not a wow? Even those of us who aren't that excited about going back home, very seldom is that the case because they tried to kill you. Now, for some, home has had some horrible experiences, so I'm not making light of that. But I am acknowledging that for Jesus in Mark 6, verse 1, to go back to Nazareth, we think, oh, he went back home. No, he went back to the place where the last time he had been there, what did they try to do? Kill him. We don't normally go back to the places where people try to kill us. That's a wow. So I want us to understand as we begin in this text that the not-so-welcome home was that Jesus had been in Nazareth more than a year prior to that, and they had attempted to kill him. <clears throat> this is a powerful reminder to me, because look what he does. Mark chapter 6, verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. What did he do when he went back? Exactly what he had done the last time. Look up here for a moment. Have you ever attempted to share truth with maybe somebody close to you, family? And they rejected it, maybe with some hostility? And you went, I'm never going there again. And you felt justified. I'm super challenged by this just from verse 1 that Jesus had shared and he went back even though they had received it with great hostility the first time. I want to encourage you, really, this morning, if you have a spouse who has rejected thus far, don't stop going back. If you have kids that have rejected thus far and been hostile about it, don't think that's over. Don't say, oh, I'm not going to go there again. We just declared in song, when we do what he does and when we say what he says, we are living proof that he is good. So some of us have given up going back. And I hope you'll be encouraged this morning to do what Jesus did and to say, I'm going to go back even when there was resistance thus far. Not because there's a guarantee that there won't be resistance again, but because I simply want to grow to be more and more like the Lord Jesus. So he goes back. And when he goes back, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, now we get to see the reaction on their second, his second visit. And the many listeners were, first reaction we see in this text is they are astonished. And they're astonished because they say, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter? The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here, right here with us. And then they took what? 
offense. Their astonishment turns to offense. So their reaction to Jesus in this return visit is first they're astonished, but then that astonishment turns to offense. They're offended by him. And then Jesus goes on and tells us in verse 6, it says that, and he wondered at their unbelief. So their reaction to his return visit is astonishment, offense, and unbelief. So you got to ask yourself, what in the world's going on in Nazareth? <laughs> this is not what the case been the case in Canaan. It had been the case in Capernaum. It had been the case wherever else. He's going, what the world's going on in Nazareth? That there is first time attempted killing, this time astonishment, offense, and unbelieving. So what is going on? Well, verse 4 tells us what's going on in Nazareth. Verse 4 says, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Isn't that a funny thought? Wherever else you go, honor. But when you come home, no honor. And the closer you get to home, from your town to your relatives to your household, less and less. So what's going on in Nazareth actually is not unique to Nazareth, and it's not unique to Jesus. He is sharing a timeless truth. It's true in St. John's County today. It's true in Duval County today. It's true in China today. It's a timeless truth. It's not unique to Jesus. It's not unique to Nazareth. A timeless truth that's revealed in Nazareth is a prophet will not, will not find receptive ears at home. The last place people want to hear truth is from kin. You know what I'm talking about, husbands? <laughs> hey, you know what I'm talking about, wives? You don't see this at work in marriage? Come on. Hey, about parents. You seen this at work, parents? It's funny when kids come home and go, oh, man, look what they told me. I've been telling you that a jillion times. I love it. I, I, I literally can't help but laugh when Jackie has told our daughters, you do know, girls, that there are women who actually seek me out for counsel. And they're going, yada, 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 yada. This is not unique to Jesus or Nazareth. The reality is that truth is often difficult to hear at home. And so, just as an, this isn't on your message memo, but we've seen now for a second time in the Gospels that living out our faith at home is often three things. First, most challenging... It's most challenging to live out our faith at home because, why? <laughs> because there's no downtime. There's no <laughs> off time. It's 24-7. It's not like church where you can drive to church and be frustrated in the car and then pull in the parking lot and go, hey, how you doing? 
you can't put on at home because the real you gets revealed. It's most challenging often to live out our faith at home, but therefore the flip side is it's most compelling. Most challenging and most compelling. Hey, parents, let's be reminded. Nothing will uh, frustrate or provoke our kids more than when they experience parents who are different at church than they are at home. When they see the hypocrisy. That'll provoke them to anger. It's compelling when your kids go, the mom and dad that I experience, that other people experience at church, I can testify that's the mom and dad we get at home. That's true for the spouse. When, if you're married and your spouse is truly being transformed by the scriptures and you see it and you know it's real because there's no just putting it on, that's compelling. The reality, the third reality to this, though, is though it's most challenging and therefore most compelling, what Jesus is declaring timelessly is this, that it's often least fruitful. And that's what can be so frustrating. So just go ahead and give up. No, no, no. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't be discouraged for this reason. Don't be discouraged. Even Jesus had rough sledding at home. Because sometimes we go, man, what am I doing wrong? And sometimes we are doing something wrong. You know, if we're being hypocritical, that needs to stop. But sometimes we think, what am I doing wrong that they're not accepting the truth that I'm trying to declare? Well, I don't know. What was Jesus doing wrong? You see what I'm saying? There's a timeless truth that's being exhibited in Nazareth before us. And that is, first, he says it, a prophet will, will often not receive honor at home. Second timeless truth is this, that clear and compelling evidence for the deity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, that he has the authority to forgive, that he is God himself, it's not a guarantee, no matter how clear the evidence, no matter how compelling the evidence, it's not a guarantee that somebody will believe. Yes or no? Nazareth had clear and compelling evidence that Jesus was the Son of God. Oh, yes. It couldn't be more clear. Couldn't have been more compelling. But they wouldn't accept it. Let me remind you, when the disciple of Jesus John, the Apostle John, writes the Gospel of John. He closes with, 
chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, near the end, he writes this. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples. He's saying, I saw lots more which are not written in this book. I saw lots more than what I wrote down. That's what he's saying. But the things that have written down, I wrote them down so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's why so many folks say, hey, if someone's not sure about the person and the work of Jesus, have them read the Gospel of John because there's clear and compelling evidence that Jesus is the Christ and believing in him, you'll be born again and be forgiven of your sin. It's, all that you need is right there in the Gospel of John. And, and John's saying, and that's just what I wrote down. There's lots, lots, lots more. Nazareth had more minutes, hours, days, months, years with Jesus than any other people on the planet ever have. It could not have been more clear. It could not have been more compelling And they didn't believe. I remind us of that because I watch us scurry around looking for the next best book or the next best article or the next best sermon that we can just send someone so they'll believe. We think that, we think that if we just make it clear enough, if, if it's just compelling enough, then, then they can't reject. That's not true. It couldn't have been more clear in Nazareth. It couldn't have been more compelling. And they didn't believe. So then I was prompted, man, okay, let me look at this text closely and say, what are the tripping points that cause people, even in the midst of clear and compelling evidence, to reject? What do we learn from Nazareth? And I was amazed at what's in this text that I've so often casually read through. So I'm going to identify for us three tripping points that are right here revealed in Nazareth. Back to verse 2. They say, where did this man get these things? And what is it, this wisdom given to him? And then it goes on. And these miracles performed. What are they saying when they say, where did he get this? They know Jesus to be trained how? What's it say in verse 3? As a carpenter. Had he ever gone to rabbinical school? No, he had not. And they knew that. They're going, carpenters don't have wisdom like this. No offense to carpenters. But, but this, is, this is more insight, more biblical understanding than we have gotten from those most studied people ever. This doesn't add up. And it's reflective that rejection, even in the face of clear and compelling evidence, can be rooted in preconceived ideas. Their preconceived idea was, he's a carpenter, he can't be declaring such truth and doing such supernatural things. He's just a carpenter. He's just a guy down the street. 
Hey, preconceived ideas have caused many to reject clear and compelling evidence. In general, the Jewish people rejected Jesus because of their preconceived idea of what the Messiah would look like and what he would do and where he would come from. And they rejected Jesus of Nazareth. Anybody in your family rejecting or on your street rejecting because of preconceived ideas? Yeah, maybe not about Jesus as a carpenter, but maybe a preconceived idea that goes like this. Hey, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. I don't really need someone to die for me. That's a preconceived idea they have of themselves. I've never met anybody who said, well, I think I'm perfect. But I've met lots of people who think I'm not that bad. In fact, it may be true that that some of you rejected Christ or are currently rejecting Christ. You're coming to church, but you're rejecting believing in Jesus because you have a preconceived idea of what you need and what you don't need. You need help. You don't need someone to die for your sin. You're not that bad. Or probably the more even greater preconceived idea in our culture today is this. Nothing's free. You get what you deserve. You only get what you earn. And so if you want to have favor with God, then you need to recognize you need to do more good than you do bad so that you can earn your salvation. That's a very, very popular preconceived idea that caused people to reject Jesus. Why? Because it's, there's not grace. It's not getting something I don't deserve. It's what I earn. I still remember a, a middle-aged lady sitting about halfway back in this south auditorium on the left side afterwards saying, I hear what you're saying, but there's nothing free. There's a, there's a catch to everything. And I could say, uh, well, it's free to you because actually Jesus paid it himself. So salvation isn't free. It cost Jesus so that he could offer it to us for free because we could never earn it or pay it back. But there is a preconceived idea that there's nothing free and so reject Jesus. What was caused people to trip up in Nazareth, preconceived ideas, they're just different ones, still happen today. That's the first. There's a second, next verse, verse three. Is not this the carpenter? And, And then they go to the whole family. The son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us? They're acknowledging, we, we know this family. We've known him since he was this high. It, come on, Jesus, we grew up playing Roll the Rock together. I don't, I don't know if that's a real game. I just made that up. But the point being, and brothers, 
Come on, work hard. We built that house right down the street. They're saying we can't see him as the son of God and the one who has authority to forgive sins. We went to school together. We played together. We worked together. We grew up together. We have had experience with him. And brothers and sisters, he's just one of us. It was actually a rejection rooted in their previous experience. What's interesting is if you talk with someone who is rejecting Christ, sometimes you'll find a preconceived idea. I don't need a savior. (laughs) Or, well, I think if I'll be good enough. But sometimes there's a story. And it's about a previous experience. Either with someone who calls themselves a Christian or with church or with a pastor. And it wasn't good. And so they have taken that previous experience and said, now I reject what they represent. You ever met somebody like that? Who is rejecting Christ because of what they've experienced? Never more clearly to me than when we lived off of Hood Road in Nature's Forest. We had a young couple move in beside us. I got to know them and After a number of months, we were riding together to Home Depot to pick up some fencing. And he says to me, Doug, I got to tell you, if I would have known you were a pastor, I would have never bought the house beside you. I was like, wow, Uh, there must be a story behind that. You mind telling it to me? And he said, no, I don't mind. When I was growing up in Los Angeles, they started busing us inner city, and my parents didn't have any interest in me being bused to an inner city school, so they found a little Christian school in our community, and they sent me to it, and I wasn't a church kid, and I wasn't a good kid. I was a bad kid, and I was a troublemaker in that little Christian school. And the pastor slash principal one day pulled me aside and said, you're a no good kid who's never going to amount to anything. He said, I never forgot it. And so when I graduated from college with honors, I took a copy of that diploma and I wrote some choice words on the back of that sucker and I sent it to him in the mail. He's still mad about it. So mad, he would not have bought the house he bought if he would have known it was a pastor who lived within 100 feet of him. That's an extreme story. Or actually, when you hear lots of stories, you go, wow, no wonder. No wonder. A few months later, he asked me to go offshore fishing with him. And I thought, are you over that hate for pastor thing? Because <laughs> not really sure I want to go 30 miles out in the ocean if we're not past that. Actually, when you meet somebody with 
a previous experience, you can't discount it or dismiss it or excuse it. All you can do is say, I'm sorry, I hope you'll have a different experience with me. That's all you can do. Don't dismiss it. Don't try to excuse it. It may not have been as bad as he described it. Doesn't matter. It was a, an experience that I knew he needed a new one. And you probably work with people, or you probably... Here, here's the funny thing. Remember last week, the woman with 12-year hemorrhage, and we had read from Ken Geyer, only God knows how much she suffered? It's quite possible that only God knows what the people on your street or people who you work with, or maybe even in your family, only God knows what their story is. You think, no, no, it's my family. No, actually, things happen in families that other family members never find out about. And you scratch your head sometimes and wonder, what's going on there? And there's a story. You just don't know it. What if you, what if you would actually engage somebody, not because you know, but because you're curious and you care about them and you simply say, hey, I know lots of people have had bad previous experience with either church or people who call themselves Christ followers. Is that part of your story? You might actually find that they have a story that you never knew about and suddenly it would click with you and you go, no wonder there's rejection. See, I'm not saying, don't miss this, I'm not saying that Nazareth had a negative experience with Jesus. I'm saying they had a previous experience that caused them to say, we can't reconcile our previous experience with what his claims are. Not because he had not been true, not because he had been hypocritical. They were just like, we can't have grown up playing with God. But it translates to many in our days who have had negative experiences. Guy came up to me after last hour and said, we're here because of a negative experience. And I hate that. I hate that because I recognize that sometimes people are somewhere else or not anywhere else because they had a negative experience here. It kills me. It's the truth. That's why I'm so, so zealous that we would be very thoughtful about how we engage relationally with those who we know and those that we don't know. That we are very thoughtful about the experiences people are having with those of us who call ourselves Christians and those who are the church that we would not be a preview experience that gives them reason to reject. The third reason rejection happens is, is stated very clearly in the text. It says in verse 3, and they took offense at him. So what's interesting is the text says it, but it doesn't say... What, why they were offended. What they were offended about. So I try to be clear when I teach you what the scripture says clearly and then when I'm guessing. So I'm about to guess, okay? I could be wrong on this one. 
I know for certain that they were offended by him. I'm going to guess why they were offended. My guess is this. Was Jesus claiming to be God? Yes? Yes. Was he claiming to have the authority to forgive sin? And he was claiming to be the Messiah. And they're going, no, no, you're just one of us. You grew up on the same street. You're not better than us. You don't have any more authority than we do. You, you can't waltz in here and say you're God. And I, I think, I think that's the offense. Have you ever had someone who you didn't think had authority in your life try to tell you what to do? Didn't like it, did you? You took offense. You thought, who do you think you are? You're not my mama. I, I think that's what's happening here. That Jesus is coming in and they're going, uh, that is offensive that you would place yourself Hey, you can come in here and be our old buddy. You can come and be here, our, our previous friend. You can't come in here and be Lord and Master, Messiah, and God. That's offensive. And I see in our present day many who reject, and their rejection is rooted in that personal protection of it's my life. <laughs> I don't want anybody else telling me what to do with what? My life. What right do you have to do to tell me what to do with my life? It's, it's their personal protection. Rejecting his authority. I could be wrong on that. I think that's what's happening. But I want you to not keep it theoretical. I want you to ask a very, a very practical, real question. Do you know anybody in your family, mom, dad, brother, sister, sons, daughters, cousins, anybody in, in your family or maybe in long-term experience of your life who is rejecting Christ? Any, anybody come to mind? Only a few of you. People coming. In other words, I don't want you to just keep. Do you have somebody in your mind that you're going, yeah. Maybe you've, maybe you've worked with them for a long time. Maybe you've been lifelong friends, but they continue to reject Christ, all right? With that person in mind now, not theoretical, with that person in mind, I ask yourself a second question. What's it seem like their rejection is rooted in? Do they have a preconceived idea? They don't need a savior. It's by works. They're good enough. Religion's a crutch for weak people, and I'm not weak. Is there a preconceived idea? Or is it a previous experience? And if you're not sure, that's why maybe, maybe you ought to ask. Maybe there's something going on that when you finally hear, you go, oh, I never knew that. Or 
And I've had plenty of people say this very directly. Mm, now, my life, I don't want somebody else trying to tell me what to do with my life. It's an authority issue. See, it's, I think that's an important question because it, it'll determine then how you might engage or how you might pray for them. But third question, not only a name, but why are they rejecting? Have you given up? Has their rejection caused you to say, I just don't go there anymore? See, as we went to this text, I was like, almost all of us have people who have been in our lives for a long time who don't know Christ, and some of us just kind of got used to them not knowing Christ, and we've stopped engaging, we've stopped praying, we've just kind of gotten used to it. And I want to encourage us to pray. And I want to pray very specifically for those in our family or our longtime experience who are currently rejecting Christ. So if you have somebody in mind specifically, can I see your hand? All right, let's pray very specifically. Father, the names that those hands represent you know. And we want to ask that you would break through that which has been the root of their rejection. If it would be their pride, if it would be their lies that they've believed, if it's been a, a hard and a hurtful past, Lord Jesus, we want to ask that you, by your goodness and your grace, that you would open their eyes so that they might be born again and walk in newness of life. Would you pray very specifically, just quietly there, would you specifically <laughs> tell the Lord, Lord, and then name them. Lord, would Joe be born again? Would Sally be born again? Would David be born again? Prays very specifically. And would you offer yourself to the Lord to be the ambassador, be, to be the one who would go back and speak again, engage again? Lord, thank you for the privilege to do what you do and say what you say to be living proof that you are gracious, that you're good. And we do pray that deserts would bloom, the deserts of many families, parents, brothers, sisters, they would be born again. God, I pray that you would break through and that we would be people who endure don't give up, but continue to engage and speak to the praise of your glory in Christ's name. Amen.
I want us to continue in the passage, the last two verses, because it kind of ends, kind of sad. Verse 5 and 6 says, and he, could do, and he could do no miracle there, except that he laid a, his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. It's kind of sad, isn't it? When you think of all that Jesus did in so many other places, but when he got home, how few were impacted. So let me ask you this question. Were few impacted because Jesus had less power at home? No. Jesus had equal power to heal there? Yeah, so why not? Why didn't he have as much healing work there, supernatural work there, that he did other places? What's it say? Why? Okay, it says that because of their unbelief. Now, I want us to, to unpack that. First, let's acknowledge that the timeless truth here is that the, the work of God in a community will be hindered by unbelief. That's what's happening in Nazareth. That God is at work in all other villages, in all other places, in ways that he's not at work there. And it's not because he doesn't have power there. It's because there's not belief there. But, but specifically, what does that look like? What does it look like when there's not belief? And I struggled with that because I wrestled with the fact, could, could it be true that the work of God is being hindered at Christian Family Chapel because of our unbelief? Could that be true? Yeah. What would that look like? And it finally hit me. It's not fuzzy. It's not even really even complicated. What it looked like everywhere else, belief would look like people asking Jesus, like Jairus did, like the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage who believed that they could be healed, and so they asked him. And so what did it look like in Nazareth? Were, were bunches of people lining up asking but not being healed because of unbelief? No. What did unbelief look like? They didn't line up and ask. And it was like a punch to my gut because I realized the work of God had been hindered in my life for many years because I didn't believe to ask. The work of God had been hindered at chapel for many years because, quite frankly, we didn't ask. I could look around and go, healing of people happens other places. Why doesn't it happen here? And then it wasn't that complicated. Because <laughs> we didn't have the belief to ask. We had previous experience that kind of went, well, I'm not sure if that really happens or doesn't happen. And so we would kind of hem and haul and say, God, do whatever you want. He's going to do that. Ask. If you believe, ask. 
The, the work of God was being hindered because of a lack of asking. That was true for person. That was true for us. Hey, do you ever wonder why aren't, why aren't people on, on my street getting saved? How much have you asked the Lord about that? Why would you think that the work of God would be happening on your street when there's not a belief that's asking him? See what I'm saying? Wow. It was like a, was like a punch to go. <laughs> and this is so true, but it had been fuzzy to me what it looked like, and that's not fuzzy to me at all. People who believe ask. We don't demand. But I had to recognize that I had prayed for my family, and then I had stopped. They had rejected. It was enough. I was done. It was just Nazareth all over. <laughs> if you stopped asking, start. If you've stopped asking for the supernatural work of God, <laughs> start. If you believe, ask. Because that's what belief does. Doesn't demand, but it asks. It doesn't remain silent. It doesn't remain casual. It doesn't remain neutral. It asks. You want a supernatural work of God in your family? Ask. You want a supernatural work of God in this community? Ask. You want a supernatural work of God in this church? Begin to ask with us. Let's ask. Because where there is no asking, there's unbelief. And where there's unbelief, the work of God is hindered. That's Nazareth. And it's not unique to Nazareth. It's a timeless truth. We've been singing this very simple song. Let faith do what? Let faith arise. Do you believe that God is the God of miracles? You do? And ask him. It's asking. We believe, we say, let's ask and let's keep asking and see him work. Not just in physical ways, spiritual ways. Not just in personal ways, in community ways. Let faith arise. So we're not closing with a song. We're praying. So I want to invite you, whether you usually sing or not, would you stand and declare together that your desires, that faith would arise, that unbelief would no longer be characteristic of your life, that faith would arise and you would begin to believe and ask, God of miracles, come, do the impossible in our midst. Let's ask. Let faith arise In spite of what I see, Lord, I believe But help my unbelief, I choose to trust you No matter what I feel, let faith arise Let faith arise for my champion's not dead, he is alive. He already knows my end.
dead in their sin is born again and it's a miracle when a person who is afraid speaks courageously it's a miracle when people who have been rejected (laughs) go back again in spite of the rejection see God of miracles works where there is believing So let faith arise and ask. Ask for God to do the supernatural in your family and keep asking. Ask for God to do a supernatural work in this community. Ask with us, please. There are so many who are rejecting. Let's ask. I think God wants to work. We're just lost in our own little lives. And he's saying, let faith arise. I'll work where people will trust me and believe in me and ask, Father, would you grow us that we would have faith more? Faith more to speak, faith more to go back, faith more to ask to the praise of your glory to the fullness of your work in this community Lord would you find us believing we ask this in Jesus name Amen God bless go in faith